everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Dr. Matthew Sleeth. Dr. Sleeth is a former ER room physician and chief of the hospital medical staff. He resigned from that position to teach preach, and write about faith and stewardship issues. Dr. Sleeth is a widely sought-after speaker and was recognized by Newsweek as one of the nation's most influential Christian leaders. Dr. Sleeth is the executive director of Blessed Earth and author of numerous articles and books. He and his wife, Nancy, live nearby in Lexington, Kentucky. In today's conversation, Dr. Sleeth and I talk about his new book, Hope Always, that releases on May 4th. So I'll link it in the show notes, but go ahead and grab a copy of that um, so you'll have it on release day. So in this book, Dr. Sleeth shares from the perspective of a physician and minister. He shares his personal and professional experiences with depression and suicide, challenging Christians to become part of the solution. With sound medical principles finding their rightful place beside timeless biblical wisdom, Hope Always offers the practical and spiritual tools that individuals, families, and churches need to help loved ones who are stressed and struggling. So if you or someone you know is struggling with mental illness and suicide, this conversation offers practical resources and hope. One resource that I want to be sure to mention at the top of the show is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and that number is 1-800-273-8255 or 800-273-TALK. It provides free and confidential 24-7 support for people in distress and offers resources for you, your loved ones, and best practices for professionals. So now, let's listen to my conversation with Dr. Sleeth. Dr. Sleeth, I am so glad to get to talk to you today. You're a return guest on the podcast, and I'm just so very grateful um, that your team contacted us. I feel like it's a compliment to the podcast and a compliment to the seminary, so just really grateful to have you back today. And I'm thrilled to be here, and I I just love working with Asbury Seminary and have for decade and a half or so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, So i since you're a return guest, I know that we, we've talked about many things on your first podcast. One thing I realized that we haven't talked about is how you came to know Jesus. So would you mind sharing that story with us? I will, and I will give you a somewhat abbreviated <laughs> version uh, because I was awfully thick-headed, and I think that God was continually trying to uh, corral me, and uh, so there's many threads that go back, but... I will um I will say that my my wife and I met when she was 18 uh it was uh I was a carpenter at the time her parents worst nightmare <laughs> <laughs> really she was from a Jewish family we uh decided to get married and uh and really had no faith our religion was the american dream you know uh live in as nice a house and as good a neighborhood as you can and and that sort of thing. And we had two children, and um, life was um, sailing along. And what really happened was a series of, of bad things uh, happened to us. 
with the with the first really being her brother drowning on vacation in front of my children. Oh no. And uh, that just had a big effect on my kids. And Nancy got depressed after that. And I think that's understandable, but, but it really persisted and she, she didn't get treated. And just one after another, things got harder and harder. And I had a patient who stalked me for a period of time, a, a rather good period of time, and if, uh, eventually did something very, very scary. And the police checked on him and found that his mother was taped up in a closet where he had beaten her to death sometime in the week preceding oh when they my. were there. So he was a dangerous person. Marriage got harder. Just everything got harder and harder and harder. And kind of the culmination of things uh, was 9-11. And I got home from work on that morning. We're living up in northern New England, perfect blue skies. And Nancy, I'm kind of sleeping on a couch because I've worked all night. And Nancy came in and said, something really bad is happening in New York. And we tuned in and as everyone were kind of horrified as things unfolded. And then my neighbor called who had a son, my son's age, they'd grown up together and said, I need your help. I need to know how to get him from school and tell him that his father was in the first plane. Oh, man. So what really happened in the midst of all that darkness is that I woke up to the idea that there was evil in the world. And my worldview was scientific. Science had given me a career. It had given me a way out of um, poverty, really. it was Right, because you were a doctor. Yeah, I was a doctor, and um, <clears throat> which is the only way that I know of to get on the good side of your in-laws if you're marrying into a Jewish family, uh, <laughs> other than go to law school. And I can't spell very well. Spell check didn't <laughs> exist then. So... Um, uh, anyways, I, I woke up to the fact that there was evil, and yet I understood that there was good. And in s- specific, I'd think back to those times where someone would come into the hospital unconscious without even their identification. And, uh, you know, if you're out jogging and you, you drop down from a heart attack, you're not carrying your wallet and your insurance card. And I would and I would step back and look sometimes, and there'd be 10 or 15 people working with hundreds of years of experience trying to save somebody who they didn't even know the name of. Mm-hmm. And that is good work, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that's why Jesus opened medical clinics, you know, everywhere he went. It's just good work. And so I went looking for where is the source of that, and I read the Ramayana I read the Bhagavad Gita. I slogged through most of the Quran. I'm not sure I can say I read the entire thing. And uh, lots of New Age things, no answers. Then one day uh, in the hospital, saw an orange book on a, on a waiting room uh, table, picked it up, said, Holy Bible on the spine. And I said, I've never read this. And more importantly, we don't have one at home. And we had a library in our house. <laughs> Uh, and so I stole it. <laughs> and, I love that. Yeah. So that's that's the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, because I know you, you stopped being a doctor. How did you? How did you know that that was the right thing to do? Yeah. From the moment I met Christ in Scripture. By the way, prevenient grace 
in my life means that my parents named me Matthew and not Numbers. So <laughs> I, I wouldn't be here if I was Numbers. So I started in the book of Matthew. I met Christ and just immediately felt that he had a different plan for my life. I The only way I can describe it is it must be what birds feel like when they have to migrate. And that was very difficult because there was nowhere to see where I was going. Everything else I had done uh, prior to that, you know, it was a long educational process and, and, and training and knowing where I was going and knowing what that was going to bring me. And instead, it was completely learning how to walk in faith. Yeah. Was that transition difficult for you as you went kind of from the lifestyle, I would imagine, of a doctor to, to a different kind of yeah, life? Yeah, we moved from a house, doctor-sized house, to a house that was exactly the size of our garage. Oh my goodness! Don't feel sorry for us. We had a doctor-sized garage, <laughs> um, but it, it was um, definitely a change. It was hard on my children, um, and you know, but it's all turned out okay, uh, and and it's all turned out okay for my my family, my my wife, and my children, or and uh, their spouses are all on the same page with us. Mm-hmm. Did it take a while for your family to... It did. It was probably about two years between when I um, accepted the reality of Christ uh, to when the last of us did. Yeah. So I've lived in a home where people believe different things, mm-hmm. and I've lived in a home where we all believe the same thing, and it's a lot easier <laughs> to live in a home where everybody's on the same page. Yes. As you... Because I would imagine... I know for me, I'm not a doctor, but some of my identity is wrapped up in what I do. How, how did you manage that shift? That, that was the hardest, hardest thing for me personally is to give up that identity, you know, to be a doctor, to be emergency room doctor, to be director of the ER, to be chief of staff at the hospital. You know, I could just go on and on. This is what I do to I'm following the Lord yeah. and trying to be faithful to that. Yeah, and that doesn't our, that doesn't cut it in society. <laughs> and are an author and teacher and speaker. Yeah, now I wear lots of hats. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, still doing good work in the world, just in a different way. Yes. Um, but you're being an author is the main reason why we're having a conversation today. Um, your book Hope Always releases on May fourth, so I want to encourage our listeners. We'll link it out in the show notes. And so be sure to grab a copy of that. Your book walks us through the extent of the suicide problem facing not just our country, but the world, um, what the Bible has to say about suicide. And you also offer some strategies for applying best practices in prevention. Why was now the right time to write Hope Always? Wow, it's kind of like that wings itching uh, (laughs) type of thing. I really felt God... Uh, pushing me in that direction. I, uh, like everyone else in society, see this more and more and more in the news. I don't think there's a day that goes uh, by without some notable person uh, ending their life uh, and unfortunately now ending other people's lives uh, too because that's on that continuum. Uh, And I I thought about it and really didn't want to write a book on this um, I, I, I love doing the psychiatric part of emergency medicine. Our hospital that I was in for the longest period of time was both the involuntary and voluntary psychiatric unit for a large area. And so it's something I dealt with on a day-to-day basis and felt comfortable working in. 
Uh, and but I had a, you know a new perspective of faith for, for the time I was a doctor I was not a person of faith and yet you know there's there's other books out on this there's other people that I thought might be better qualified and then I typed into a, a Google search bar one day what does God think about suicide because I wanted to see what what's available to the average person going mm-hmm. to the place where everybody goes to start yes. these days. And uh, an article came up by two th- theologians writing for the Society of Biblical Literature who said that the Bible not only didn't have any injunctions against suicide, but that Jesus could be considered to have committed suicide. And I will tell you and your listeners that that is, well, I'm not allowed to say it. I'm on an Asbury podcast, <laughs> but I would use a four-letter word to describe <laughs> what nonsense and hogwash um, that revisionist theology uh, is. Um, The church has traditionally had very strong views about suicide, and those are well thought out. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and that wasn't enough. I went and and read uh, some of the uh, best-selling secular books on it, and then I got the books that are available to Christians. And in the Christian books, I found lots of good information. However, basically what I found was a baptism of secular thinking. And so I did something I've done with every book that I've written, which is to start at uh, Genesis and say, God, teach me something. And I thought, what is he going to teach me that isn't in these other books? Mm -hmm. And I went a page into the Bible, and bang. No one had mentioned Adam and Eve. Not a single Christian book on suicide that I picked up. There may be some out there, and and I hope there are, but not one of them mentioned that. And yet Adam and Eve were told, if you do this, you will die. Not die, you'll surely die. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And they did it. And when we do something that we absolutely know is going to kill ourselves, that's called suicide. And they didn't do it alone. They had help. Mm-hmm. Um, Satan was there pushing. Uh, and that's what really pushed me over the edge. I, I got chills and I realized every single Christian book I looked at had overlooked the origin of of suicide. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In your research, what did you find the extent of the problem of suicide to be? The suicides are measured uh, in uh, in number of suicides per 100,000, and that's been the, the typical way that they are measured. And part of the reason they're measured per 100,000 is it gives you, it allows you to compare one population to another. It allows you to compare one time to another. And right now, the suicide rate is a little over 14 per 100,000. That is the traditionally high rate that was experienced in our country during the aptly named Great Depression. Mm -hmm. But in the book, Hope Always, I tease apart those statistics. You know, God seems to use everything out of my past at some time to help, and I bizarrely have 11 statistics classes in my background <laughs> wow. um, and uh, and went to a medical school in which that was a very, very big topic that was discussed was understanding um, deeply uh, studies. Uh, the book we were, you know, studying a studying and testing a test was the test textbook. But um, and when you dig in just a little bit, you realize that uh, 14 per 100,000 in 1930 versus 14 per 100,000 here in 2021 bear little 
resemblance to each other. And here's why. In 1930, it was a lot easier to kill yourself. And uh, by that, I mean the medical systems just weren't what they are right now. Um, today, if somebody is found and they've overdosed on something and they're obtunded, meaning they're alive, but not not quite, uh, people activate the 911 system. A mobile hospital comes out with paramedics and EMTs that have more training than physicians had in this in 1930, and they have drugs to administer to reverse things. If they can't do that, they can bring you to a hospital that has an emergency department with highly trained uh, people who have equipment to breathe for you if you can't, etc. All of that was missing in 1930. Uh And so I think a much better measurement is not the number of people who have um, died by suicide in in a year or per 100,000, but the number of people trying to. Oh, yes. And if you look at that, over the coming year, about 10 million Americans will consider seriously whether or not to end their life. And of that 10 million, one and a half million will end up in emergency departments being treated. Mm. And despite all those you know, miracles that are, that are available today, still, uh, you know, during the course of a one hour interview, we're going to lose between five and six people in the United States. Mm. Uh, and that adds up. It's about 130 some per day and 2,200 worldwide. So this is significant. It is. It's very significant. And I, it doesn't get talked about a, a lot. I don't, I don't know if I've ever I don't know if I've ever really heard a yeah, sermon. Yeah, I'm going to put you on a, the spot. Have you ever heard a sermon about suicide? I don't think so. And I know that there are pastors who have preached about it, but I have yet to meet anyone who's told me that they've heard a sermon about suicide. And I, uh, I believe that those who have generally, if they have, they've heard what I would call a comfort sermon, and that is a sermon after the fact, but never a proactive sermon. A sermon on what does the Bible say? Is it right or wrong? Yeah, etc. Yeah, because I do, from what I understand the Bible, and I have I'm not a scholar, so I haven't studied it a lot. I don't know. Does the Bible say anything specific about suicide? Like, what does talk to us a little bit about what the Bible does? Sure, have to absolutely. Say about it. Yeah. So one of the things I do in uh, Hope Always is to go through Scripture and um, look at every time Satan shows up. And then look at every time somebody says, I'm at the end of the rope, I want to kill myself, Mm -hmm. and they cry out to God. And then I examine a third um, scenario, and that is, uh, and this is another thing that disturbed me about Christian books on this, mention of people like uh, Saul or Solomon, and classifying those as a suicide, which I believe shows a profound lack of understanding of (laughs) history, war, etc., Saul and Solomon are people who um, are combatants in a war. (laughs) And, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, and yet Christians have gone to war for 2,000 years. There are, you know, uh, just war theories, etc., but um, some of the rules don't apply. And to call Saul a suicide is the same as saying the people that jumped off the top of the World Trade Center because they were going to burn to death and they preferred to go down that way, uh, suicide. And, and I think that demeans 
um, the experience of soldiers throughout time, firefighters, police, etc., who when they rush into a burning building know that they might die, but their intent is to save others. Mm-hmm. And so I, I look at all those uh, scenarios. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As, as you researched and wrote, you talked about the what Christians viewed about suicide. We've already talked about that a little bit. What did you find is the relationship between faith, mental illness, and suicide? Well, it's been known that committed Christians commit suicide at about four to six times less uh, a rate than an atheist. Mm. This has been studied for scientifically for about 140 years uh, as as far as I know, there's no study worldwide that um, doesn't agree with that. And yet, Christians think about suicide as much as non-Christians. Interesting. And so there's something about Christianity that keeps people uh, from uh, suiciding at the same rate of, of atheists. And in Hope Always... What I wanted to do, and what I think is different than other Christian books even on the topic, is not to know why people committed suicide. There's hundreds of books on that, but to know why Christians don't. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's the important thing. You know, suicide is the one disease in which prevention is the only acceptable treatment. Um, it, it does not do a whole lot of good to rehash over and over again why people have committed suicide. We want to get out ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, why, why is hope so important? Well, in talking to folks who had been in the same horrible situations uh, as folks who had committed suicide, and they had thought about it or even tried it, but then gotten beyond that, I, I wanted to find out what are, what are the common elements. Yes, mm-hmm. what is it that keeps alive? And I had help from, a, a, I don't have her permission to use her name. I'm sure she'd say fine, but I would rather ask before. For uh, sure. But just, just this lovely, lovely human being um, who, who lives in my, my hometown of, of Lexington, and she's 93, and she went through a period of being suicidal. Uh, because she had supported her husband through medical school and residency, and then he came home one day and said, I met somebody younger, and and uh, they don't have three kids like we have, and I'm leaving you. And What a blow. What a blow. I mean, what a dastardly thing to do. And she became not only depressed, but suicidal and made a plan of how she would do it. And yet she didn't. And so we kind of went through with her and lots of other people I've uh, talked to, why didn't she? Yeah, why didn't she? And there's a list. It's not, and number one, it seemed to be a common number one with people was fear of what would happen. And what Mm. does the Bible say is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of (laughs) the Lord. (laughs) To jump into an abyss and not have any idea what is there, one should be scared. (laughs) We should be scared. So fear. Number two, and this was a common number two, is how it would affect the people she loved. For her, her children. Mm -hmm. And we know that suicide is devastating, for, particularly for children, uh, when the parents commit suicide. We have a, a, a wonderful Christian writer who wrote quite a bit about that, which was Frederick Buechner. 
And I think he was about 11, 11 or 12 when his father committed suicide. It just had a profound effect on his entire life. So that was number two. And number three was faith. That's that's mm. where mm-hmm. kind of traditional, you know, faith, her community, her church, uh, she found a, a group within her church that would support her. Four was kind of encouragement. It, it was before the age of post-it notes. She actually had to tape up on on the mirror and various places throughout the house, scriptures and encouragements to her. Mm-hmm. And and then she began to have an understanding from other people telling her that they had been through this, that she would make it through, that mm-hmm. this wouldn't last forever, that there was hope. Mm-hmm. And when there's hope, you can power through a lot of stuff. Right. I'm thinking about the person, Dr. Sleeth, who really struggles with mental illness, um, whether it's depression, anxiety. You've talked about a multitude of mental illnesses. And from what I understand about it, I could be wrong, so please correct me. But from what I understand, sometimes in those situations, it is so big and you feel like you don't have a choice. Like it's just... There's right. nothing left. Or that everyone would be better off if right. if you did this. And that's where the support of the church really comes in. If you think about it, if the um if somebody came into a church today and said, I have cancer, right. that might be announced right from the pulpit. You might provide rides to doctors, meals are going to come around if you need them. In a good church, somebody's going to write you a check because there's always extra bills uh, to be paid, and yet there's not a single case of cancer in Scripture. That, by the way, is not the wrong way to treat cancer. That's the absolute right way, but conversely, if somebody got a new diagnosis of bipolar disease or schizophrenia or unipolar depression, that would probably, nothing would be said about it. And uh, so those people feel isolated from the the one community that's best able to support them. Right, right. And I was reading another book that isolation removes us from our shared humanity and makes us can make us feel unworthy and so very alone. And and God built us to be in community, and nothing shows that more than the last year, right. you know, that we've been through. Right. People suffer when they are not in in community. We are communal creatures, right. uh, if you will. And so, a, a large prayer of mine for this book is that it gives the church the theological and the practical tools to kind of engage with this. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because as Christians, we are called to pursue life in all areas. Um, we are, and I'm I'm reaching for a Bible here, <laughs> and you know I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna give you two Bible verses for all the work I'm doing in this, if you don't mind. Oh, for sure, please. And, and the first is Jesus giving us the bottom, bottom, bottom line <laughs> on yeah. on on suicide. Because suicide is something that is unique to human beings. It does not exist in the animal kingdom. Scientists cannot find an an animal model to study it. Mm -hmm. Um, No zebra has ever woken up and said to heck with it, I'm not going to run from the lion today. It is is a distinctly human experience Mm -hmm. and problem. And Christ gives us the triple bottom line on on the whole situation. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. Um, so I kind of think that's you know where everything's coming for. And I'm going to give you one more verse if okay, you please. if you don't mind. So we know where suicide comes from. We know from Scripture. But every time Satan shows up, practically he's trying to get somebody to kill themselves. Even when he meets Christ, mm-hmm. he's trying to get him to jump. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question is, well, what responsibility do we have as individuals or as a collectively as a church? And uh, an Asbury grad of your MDiv program and I were discussing how do you preach on this? Yes, how do you? Yeah. And and he said, I've got a scripture for you, okay? And he says, it's, it's um, Proverbs 24, uh, verses 11 and 12, Asbury grad, my son-in-law, okay? <laughs> and this is what it says, rescue those that are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we do not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Mm. There's no wiggle room in there. Right. We are our brothers and sisters keeper. We are. So how can we how can we be helpers to people who are struggling with mental illness, suicidal ideation? What can we do to pursue life? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I believe that, you know, knowledge empowers us in this. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is so that somebody has, you know, a firm theologic footing. They, they know their, you know, what they're battling and everything. And, and uh, this is always, to some extent, a spiritual battle, even though there are very uh, physiologic components to it and everything. And then I wanted people to have some real practical tools. So I'm going to walk you through the worst case scenario. Please, okay? that's what we want. We want to help. Yeah. We want to help people. I, I'm uh, by training an ER doc. So I'm, you know, we always go to the worst, worst case scenario. Right. Um, the first thing is you've got to ask, and there is a reluctance to ask even a close friend about their thoughts about suicide, and part of that is a concern that it might increase the chance or put it into a person's head. I promise you, if your loved one or friend is going through a really hard time, it has already crossed their mind. <laughs> And this has been studied again and again and again. You will not increase the rate of suicide in somebody by asking them about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that was just drilled into us in, in medical school. You're not going to do harm here because we're taught first do no harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, people perceive it as you caring. Oh, yes. Uh, so... I in the book I give people a sentence or two you know that they can they can use as a script you don't have to be original here and what I would always ask people is have you been thinking about harming yourself mm-hmm. or hurting yourself and people are generally relieved that you've asked that if they have been thinking about it mm-hmm. because they're isolated alone with that thought until yes. they they articulate it. And so if the answer to that question is yes, you have to ask the second question is, do you have a plan? Have you thought about how you would do that? If they have a plan, then you have to ask means. Mm-hmm. So if, yes, I've been thinking about um, – uh, killing myself, um, I would do it with a pistol, let's say. 
and and I own a pistol, you now have an emergency on your yes. your hands. That's why God invented nine one one. Okay, so that <laughs> okay. is the next step. Yeah, then. that's that's the next step. They got to go to an ER. What if they don't? What do you do if they don't want to? That is a great question. I I believe you know that in some instances you just have to go ahead and dial nine one one. You tell them you're doing that. Uh, I think that most people want to be stopped. And it's not just what I think. That's what studies show. Yeah. Most people want to be stopped. And there might be a, a hesitancy. And the other thing that goes along with that is never agree to keep somebody's plans of suicide uh, secret. Mm-hmm. This is the one time that the Bible tells us we can lie. <laughs> um, where is that in the Bible? We have the the medical experience of, I believe it's Shipra and Pua. Oh, yeah. Yes, the two yeah. uh, midwives in Egypt who lied to the Pharaoh um, to to save lives. And what does the Lord do? He rewards them. And actually, if you look at the meaning of their name, which I remember, it, but not, not the transliterations, the meanings of their names are splendid and beautiful. That's what the Lord thinks of people who lie to save lives. Yeah. Um, and so never keep somebody's suicide uh, secret. If they, if they absolutely refuse, then you know, uh, don't put yourself in danger, but then I would recruit others to help mm-hmm. would be the, yeah. next, the next step. Yeah. And, um, and police departments and uh, fire departments, you know, rescue squads and, and emergency rooms are used to dealing with people who you know, can be difficult because they're in the worst scenario. They're in pain. Yeah, like- the place they can be. Um, And that's why um, the law allows in all states uh, for a physician to involuntarily uh, commit somebody. And people do get to the emergency department and sort of stall out and can't sign themselves in. And and that's why um, I would involuntarily commit them. And do you know what? I, I never had a single person come back and say, I'm mad at you because you put me in the hospital. Yeah. But I have had people come back and say, you saved my life. Yeah, yeah. How do we know, either when we're listening and thinking about our own struggles internally and know that this is something that we're dealing with right now, or we have a friend, a loved one, how do we know when it's time to reach out for help? What are some of the signs of that? Well, uh, I think that a depression that's lasted for a couple of weeks. Like say, let's say, for instance, you lose a parent or something. Uh, Bible tells us how we're, it's not a life salvation we go to, it's a funeral, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? And the Bible tells us Jesus wept. And, and, and um, uh, particularly in Judaism, there's very good mechanisms of grieving, which I believe we're, we're you know, missing in, in the Christian world sometimes. But if something persists beyond a couple of weeks, and I go through all the symptoms of depression here and kind of have a, have a screening mnemonic, then it's, it's time to talk to somebody. If you're depressed and not thinking about suicide, and you might have some idea what's wrong, I, I think that it's good to ask spiritual questions. Am I depressed because I've done something that I know is inconsistent with my faith? Uh, is the Lord trying to tell me to move on or to grow wings and you know get out of Ur or whatever? Um, and to ask those kind of questions. And 
Some churches have counselors um, there. Uh, this seminary trains counselors yes. uh, for this. I don't think you have to jump immediately to medicines, right. but but medicines can be helpful in in getting out of this. So a primary care doctor would probably be the the place First to start yeah. uh, as far as medications go. Yeah. And you mentioned counseling. I do want to mention we did a counseling uh, a podcast about counseling with our counseling faculty. So if you're interested in that, we'll link that in the show notes too, so that you can kind of we talk through some how to know when counseling is a good step for you, how to find a counselor, things like that. So we'll link that. In the I got I got a hit on that link and listen. <laughs> that, sound, <laughs> okay. that sounds great. Yeah. The the other thing that is available to people is. 1-800-273-TALK. Yes. And that's the National Suicide Hotline. And they keep resources for your area. So anyone anywhere in the country can call and they have an idea what's available as far as help in your area. And I think that that is a great number for every Christian to put in their phone. Um, If you're if you're talking with somebody and they're thinking about this, that shows you care. If you, hey, let me share a contact with you in case things yeah. ever get really bad. Is it a number that if you're with somebody, you can call to know how to help them? Like if you get stuck? I don't believe that okay. that's, that's okay. the typical call that they get. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to know to mm-hmm. help better equip people, but it is, we will link that number as well because this this podcast, this conversation is all about giving people with the resources that they need to choose life. Yes, so. and and so thanks to my lovely wife, my better three quarters, <laughs> the, the last portion of Hope Always is one practical thing after another. It's a toolkit of resources, you know, multiple resources available, books to recommend, movies to watch, uh, songs to listen to. You know, it's just it's just chock full of practical stuff because that's my wife and not me. Yeah, <laughs> to turn our eyes to hope. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How can pastors, because we, we talked about the church, so I want to go here for a minute. How can pastors prepare themselves and those in their congregation to, to offer help and life to people? I think they've got to start talking about this from the pulpit. This is, um, you know, a, a problem that's that's just enormous, and, and I think you have to discuss it from the problem you have, uh, from the pulpit. Um, you, you can do a biblical survey. Um, they can use this book and, and get right to a sermon really fairly quickly. There is, by the way, a chapter just for pastors uh, in, in this book. And they don't have to be professionals at this, but I think it's it's good that you have in your um, your Rolodex. I know those are all virtual these <laughs> days. You know, a list of resources, counselors in the area, books to recommend, things like the book "Telling Yourself the Truth," uh, things like that that um, that they can help and not just blow it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if you don't give any sermon on it, you've given a sermon. Yeah. Uh, you've said this is not this is not appropriate for church to talk about, and and that's just not not the case. And and it, for those pastors that struggle with depression themselves, know that you are in great company. I talk quite a bit about Charles Spurgeon in this book, who uh, suffered bouts of depression that mm. that went on and on. And we know people like Mother Teresa suffered with depression. 
uh, throughout uh, many decades of her life, and yet look at the look at the fruit, look at the legacy mm-hmm. of Spurgeon and and mm-hmm. uh, Mother Teresa. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing there's not research on uh, 2020 and how mental illness increased potentially or suicide rates increased, but. I would imagine there may be a spike. You can speak into that better yes, than I can. Um, the, the most recent statistics uh, appear that there was actually in suicides, there was a tiny, tiny minuscule drop. So I'm not sure that that's statistically, but more than over overshadowed by an increased number of overdose deaths. Oh. And I believe there's definitely a connection between um, overdose deaths and suicide. I believe that it shows, you know, kind of a culture of despair and an ambivalence towards life. And if you don't mind, I'm going to explain what people are playing with out there in the drug world these days. Okay. Drugs have gotten very, very dangerous because we have synthetic narcotics now. Fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. And there's so many fentanyl overdoses, but carfentanil is 10,000 times uh, more potent than heroin. And if you're taking anything today that didn't come from a pharmacist and has a pharmacy label on it, you are rolling the dice. It is just like playing Russian roulette with a pistol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely it is. So Dr. Sleeth, we've talked about a lot of a lot of bad, but hope mixed in. So how can how can we find hope in the middle of all of this? What would you tell us? I, I think that hope begins with children by instilling in them and understanding as adults that we are not an accident of the universe, that we are the creation of a loving God who loves us so much you know, that he would come and die for us, and that any suffering that we are going through, God understands. Uh, He's a man of sorrow. Jesus was acquainted with grief. It doesn't mean that you're any less of a Christian, that you're going through one of these periods, but that you will come out of this. And in in our life, we we live, as the Bible says, three score in ten, and if you're lucky, throw another score on, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the beginning of eternity. And so I think changing the mindset that we are created by a loving God, we're here for a purpose, and this is the beginning of eternity, and that we shouldn't end it. Mm, yes, definitely. I have one question that I like to ask everybody who comes on the show, but before I ask that, is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't already talked about? Just uh, just a thankfulness for this institution. It, it's been, uh, you know, I've gotten to speak at hundreds of churches and seminaries, uh, but this uh, Asbury has been very special uh, and helpful to me. Yeah. I don't fit into any particular slot. I'm a square peg and you know round <laughs> holes. But somehow Asbury has always found a way to make me a part of this community. I'm very deeply grateful yeah. for. Yeah, well, we're so grateful to have you, and I believe you're speaking in chapel later this month. So your podcast will come out uh, before your chapel message. Am I your April 29th? Is that right? It's 
I believe it's April 29th, but I was asked to speak on something other than Okay, well, they'll still <laughs> so get to hear you. Don't want to disappoint you if you come to chapel, all right? <laughs> yeah, well, any any message from you would be, would be well worth attending. So for our question, because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? It, it is a practice that I, I took up at the very beginning of my walk with the Lord and our family has, and that's Sabbath. Mm. Uh, for me, uh, Sabbath, and I, and I talk about Sabbath in, in Hope Always because I think it's just part of the hygiene, good hygiene of being a Christian. I know that no matter how bad things are, I am only six days away from my favorite day of the week. Ah, yes. Yes. What does Sabbath look like for you? In non-pandemic times. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, if we are, if I'm not traveling and speaking in some place, it's it's a day where we the the one thing we do not do is engage in work or commerce. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get about a hundred emails at least a day. Um, so my wife, you know, doesn't open that computer up. She does not look at the email um, program. We don't, we don't engage in buying or selling. Um, work. The definition of work has changed over the centuries, but commerce remains the same. Mm-hmm. And of all days, I try to focus on putting into me what I what passes through the Philippians four eight filter, and those are the things that are good and true and pure, and that you wanna. You want to talk about mm-hmm. um, because they're edifying and they reflect the Lord. Yeah, for sure. I believe that was our last podcast conversation with more about Sabbath. So if you want to hear more about that, we'll link that in the show notes as well, because Dr. Sleeth had some really good things to say when we had an hour to talk about it. So Dr. Sleeth, this conversation has just been such a delight. Thank you for for taking the time to talk to all of us about that and just for the work and the gift that your book is to the world. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Matthew Sleep. Just so grateful for his time, his research, and the gift that that is to each of us. Like he said, I want to go ahead and encourage you to put the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number into your phone. It's 800-273-8255. It's 800-273-TALK. He offered us a variety of resources to help others, but this is one of the easiest that we can just have at the ready to help ourselves and others pursue life. Thank you all so much for listening today. Just very grateful for you guys as well. And as always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.